Federal Writers Conference in Santa Barbara. This is tape number 10. Nicholas Meyer is the speaker. <laughs> it's showtime. Good evening, and welcome back to the Culture Center of Southern California. <clears throat> My name is Barnaby Conrad. Let me make a correction on an announcement I made yesterday. You remember during the agents panel, uh, we announced a sudden uh, voluntary pirate workshop that was going to be scheduled for tonight. Uh, it has been moved to tomorrow night. Uh, Wednesday night after the Hall and Ellison uh, talk, uh, there will be a workshop in the Montecito room, which will be led by Francis Halpern and Michael Larson, Elizabeth Pomada, and Bill Downey, on the process of publishing, starting with the preparation of a manuscript, taking you through editing, publishing, and marketing. Uh, it's probably uh, the greatest collection of talent that you can put together on that subject and it will start at about 10 o'clock, 10.15 and will go till exhaustion. Uh, that's tomorrow night in the Montecito room. The Montecito room, for those of you who haven't yet made it, is, is really the room in which you registered when you checked in. Uh, there's a door adjacent to the bar which takes you into that room and also... Thank you, Bill. Uh, also, uh, there's a door right off the main lobby. It's between the lobby and the bar, which is a terrible place to be. Uh, we have found a cross pen. Check your pockets, please. Uh, anyone who's lost a cross pen, uh, it's here. We have found that within our group, there are a sizable number of students from past years and present who are very modest and humble and retiring. And they keep, keep whipping up to one of us and saying, did you know I published a book this year? Or did you know I have a book coming out in September? And we don't know that. And we would like to know that. So if you would be good enough to bring us up to date by just scribbling a note with your name and your most current achievement in the way of publication or contracts or whatever, and drop it in the write-on box. We're trying to put together a page in our final issue of write-on which will list the achievements of some of our students, uh, achievements which have thus far been hidden under the mushroom. Uh, if you will um, be good enough to do that, just on a slip of paper and tell the clerk at the desk, for anyone who is still in the dark, uh, the write-on contribution box is right behind the main desk in the lobby. At that same place is the box in which you are to submit your entries in the various competitions that are being run this week. You remember the three competitions? One is for the worst opening sentence that can be written, one that is guaranteed to turn off the reader. Second is for the best opening passage. And third, we are going to give awards in the areas of fiction, nonfiction, and poetry for the best contribution up to a thousand words on the subject of change. 
Now those contributions should be dropped in the box. Deadline is noon Thursday, and uh, the judges will then retire to their smoke-filled room and make their decisions, but you have no time beyond that. I would like to also call to your attention that, uh, as we did yesterday afternoon, we have a stand-up mic in each aisle, and uh, when our speaker is through this evening, instead of groping around the audience for questions and then having to repeat the questions which no one has heard, we're going to ask those who have questions to line up at the respective mics and ask the questions so that everyone can hear them. I think it worked very well yesterday, and I would like you to please follow the same procedure tonight, and we will do it for the remainder of our evening speakers. Before we go on with our speaker this evening, uh, let me introduce a few people that you ought to know. Uh, tomorrow afternoon at 4 o'clock, we have a, uh, a girly act uh, in the auditorium. Uh, two very attractive young ladies who are, have published a book which will be out in September, representing their interviews with a hundred magazine editors and publishers as to what they want. The book is going to be called Getting Published, and you are going to have uh, the availability of their information. I'd like you to meet Diane Gage and Marsha Hipsch. Where are you, ladies? There they are. At the same time, in the Santa Barbara room, one of our former students who will be speaking on two subjects, both of which she has been published on. One is the subject of psychic women, and the second is the subject of biography. She has an upcoming book on a bio biography of Marguerite Higgins, the war correspondent. That's Antoinette May. Antoinette, are you here? There you are. Also with us last is our speaker of last night, Hank Searles. Hank, where are you? That's your pen. What were you autographing with outside? All right. We're up to tonight's program. Our speaker tonight has been somewhat falsely represented, uh, and yet not really. Uh, in our advanced publicity, he has been given the designation of a writer-director. Uh, he has directed a series of major film efforts. He started, I think his first picture was one called Time After Time. He did another picture on Sherlock Holmes called The 7% Solution. He directed uh, a major television mini-series on the Holocaust, uh, the, the atomic bomb Holocaust, called The Day After, which you may remember, an ABC production, which got great acclaim. He did a Star Trek, The Wrath of Khan. Uh, he, what else have, have, have I got? He is just finishing, uh, and he, he is just finishing at the moment a brand new picture, which was made in Mexico, uh, and is a complete change of pace. It's, it's a kind of, I gather, a comedy. 
made in Mexico and Central America, a comedy about the Peace Corps called Volunteers. And he tore himself away from the mixing room tonight. The picture is due to be in theaters on the 26th of July, which is, you know, tomorrow. And um, he is uh, here by, I think he sneaked out of the, the mixing room and has to be back there early tomorrow morning. But I say all of that uh, is kind of a partial representation. He also has five novels published and uh, is consequently a man who uh, has uh, many talents. He came out to Hollywood as a writer uh, and kind of segued into direction. Uh, his last novel was published in, 19, in 1981 and uh, he is waiting until his picture is finished and is planning to go back to the typewriter. He's a man I think you're going to enjoy meeting and we're very honored and proud to have him with us to share this evening, Mr. Nicholas Meyer. Thank you, Barnaby. Good evening and thank you for attending. I call this encouraging. When I was invited to speak here this evening, I asked what topic I was to address. The answer which reached me third hand in a foreign country was, talk about writing. And inasmuch as we are congregated more or less within the greater Los Angeles area, I assumed that my novels were of secondary interest and that screenwriting was the kind of literature we were going to discuss an impression which may have been erroneous, but which nevertheless figures largely in the preparation of my text. I pondered several subjects related to screenwriting, the process of adaptation, writing for films versus writing for television versus writing for reading, that old standby, how to get an agent, and found myself yawning. I gave the matter some thought and decided to deliver a sermon instead. It's doubtless the frustrated preacher in me that rises to such an opportunity. There's a delicious moment at the end of the film version of Around the World in 80 Days, where in Phileas Fogg, played by David Niven, with only minutes to win the bet upon which he has staked his entire fortune, dashes through the streets of London in a smoking jacket, only to run into a Salvation Army street gathering headed by Beatrice Lilly, when Fogg unthinkingly reveals to the stern-faced lady that he is in a desperate hurry because of a wager. She seizes his sleeve with religious fervor and halts him in his tracks. A wager, she exhales portentously. Don't give in to the Prince of Darkness, madam. I have no intention of giving in to the Prince of Darkness, says David Niven, who nevertheless allows himself to be detained long enough to sing a verse of hymn 527, Have Courage, My Boy, to Say No and then graciously parts with a five-pound note as he sails on to victory. That's the kind of sermon I'd like to deliver tonight, a brief but hopefully pertinent tug on your sleeves as you hurry in pursuit of doubtless worthy goals. All I ask is that you give me the few minutes of your time as graciously as Phileas Fogg does in the movie. At the risk of sounding pretentious then, and possibly of leading you through a hall of mirrors I would like to tackle a somewhat broader theme than maybe normal at such gatherings as these, I don't know. 
namely the production of art as a moral act. Let me clear the decks first, if I may, by acknowledging that in all artistic endeavors, it is doubtful if a monetary consideration is absent. The Globe Theater of Shakespeare's time, we must remember, was a money-making operation. It is hard to believe that even the most abstruse poet does not somewhere contemplate the dreamy prospect of publication and with it some attendant financial reward. This is certainly as it should be. And Dr. Johnson was doing no more than acknowledging reality when he wrote that a man is a fool who writes for any other reason. That probably goes for women, too. But like Oscar Wilde's provocative assertion that all art is useless, Dr. Johnson's sweeping maxim is but one side of a coin. Artists do not live by dollars alone, else they would scarcely have developed as artists in the first place. Artists are people who believe they have something to say. Unfortunately, in pursuit of the former goal, we writers sometimes tend to overlook the latter. This is especially true in Hollywood, the vineyards in which I toil, where vast sums of money are spent in the creation and manufacture of artistic enterprises requiring, inevitably, that still vaster profits justify these same costly enterprises. And the heat gets ever hotter. There can be no question that the cost of making a film has increased proportionately far more than the cost involved in publishing a novel, which even allowing for inflation is not very great. I am disturbed, however, by the seeming willingness, nay, even eagerness, on the part of many filmmakers and writers to jettison all social and moral concerns in favor of crowd-pleasing at any cost. Perhaps I've simply been overwhelmed by the gravity of the times in which we live, wherein humanity, and indeed the planet itself, hangs by an unraveling cosmic thread. Or perhaps more prosaically, I am merely a victim of my own middle age, which resents wasting two hours of my valuable time on garbage more than might have been the case when I was 18, and garbage might have snuck past my defenses in the guise of novelty. But whatever the cause, I am conscious of a kind of desperate pandering encouragement of sleazy values or of no values at all, as if money were the only end and any means justified such an end. I get the feeling that in their zeal to score, filmmakers are losing sight of the distinctions that serve to clarify the difference between an audience and a mob. I am troubled as well by the facile rationales with which the more experienced and glib practitioners of this aesthetic ledger domain defend their activities. These same people, prospering mightily, live in fine houses, collect fine art, and contribute to worthy causes. Perhaps only their gas-guzzling vehicles give them away to public view. But they remind me of nothing so much as absentee slumlords compartmentalizing their lives between the tawdry sources of their income and the tasteful ways in which they display their ill-gotten gains. I think of Nebraska's Senator Roman Ruska, who, defending President Nixon's nomination of a notably mediocre judge, G. Harold Carswell, for the Supreme Court, said, surely there are plenty of mediocre people in the world. Don't they deserve mediocre justice? <laughs> he was being serious, unfortunately as serious as certain television producers defending their trashy miniseries, as if there were not enough mediocrity to go around. 
It is worth noting that I'm not attacking pornographers or the makers of snuff films. These we can all comfortably rail against, and righteously too. I am talking about those people who premeditatedly practice mediocrity, who deliberately set out to capture mediocrity because, like the senator from Nebraska, they feel that mediocrity is all mediocre people deserve and they hope to make some money by this dictum. It troubles them not that they contribute to the perpetuation of mediocrity. Perhaps these observations appear reactionary or a worse sin in our world, unrealistic. But it has always been my view that good art and making money are not mutually exclusive and never have been. It's simply that it requires more effort to do both simultaneously. It is harder. That it is eminently feasible, however, the example of the Globe Theater amply demonstrates. It is simply that practitioners have to make up their minds that the latter goal is as important as the former. Art can be many things, beautiful, frightening, ugly, appalling, disgusting even, but it always serves to illumine the human condition, never to debase it. Even at its most pitiable, I use the word in its Elizabethan sense, art is and ought to be exalting and uplifting. Art is supposed to make you feel good. People may weep at the end of Romeo and Juliet, but they are never depressed by it. Only lousy art is depressing. I must acknowledge here a further definition of terms. I have used the word art to describe cinematic endeavors, and I have not used the word loosely. For even bad or decadent or corrupt art is nonetheless art. Friday the 13th, by any other name, still seeks to evoke through the Aristotelian methods that combination of pity and terror. It is bad art, perhaps, because the reasons for which it seeks these things are simply to line the pockets of those connected with such an undertaking, but it is nonetheless art. It is an imitation of life, albeit a deliberately flawed and distorted one. Art is supposed to be human beings imitating life in whatever medium, intending to provoke that spark of recognition of what we call identification. Let me further clarify my terms by adding that in my view, a work of art ought to be judged on what it sets out to do, not what it does not set out to do. Thus, it is useless to dismiss the music of Tchaikovsky as schmaltz without noting that it is the very best schmaltz. You don't go up to an elephant and blame it for not being a blueberry. <laughs> we're not talking about censorship here, we're talking about attitude, something a lot more difficult to pin down. It may be that the callousness and callowness and carelessness which characterize much contemporary writing proceeds not so much as the result of a mercenary cynicism, but more unhappily as the product of a deep internal hopelessness. Characterized thus, it runs something like this. Well, since we're going to blow up anyway, what's the difference? Eat, drink, and get what you can, because tomorrow we will none of us be here. Whatever its roots, this cynicism is unfortunate. It not only robs the audience of great expectations, it not only conditions them to anticipate less and even to resent more, but it also deadens the souls of the perpetrators by constant repetition. Well, I'm concerned about them, too. Instead of responding to content, we become obsessively concerned with form, with how well something is done, with how good the special effects are, so to speak, rather than with what is being done. I'm reminded of the man who brought Mark Twain to the circus and who objected when Twain failed to react to an acrobat hanging from a trapeze by his nose. 
Don't you realize how difficult this is, he demanded. Difficult, Twain responded. I wish it was impossible. The point I'm attempting to make is sketchy at best, a fact which probably bothers you more than me. I don't pretend to stand before you with answers. An artist's job is not to provide the answers, but to come up with the questions. I do not pretend to tell you how to write or what to write, but I do make so bold as to remind us all who we are, human beings with souls, hearts, and consciences which I would rather not see get lost in the shuffle. We all want to be successful. Thank you. We all want to be successful, but whether we believe the world to be ending or no, we owe some measure of dignity to ourselves and to our species while we're still here. Write as though you had a reason for writing. Otherwise, be stockbrokers. The money is better and so are the hours. And you won't be contributing to pollution Writing cuts down a lot of trees and film consumes a great deal of silver. Don't deliberately create built-in obsolescence. Write, if not for the ages, at least for the next five years. Write as if you believe the world will endure, not as though you're counting on annihilation to dispose of your trash. The residuals will be better too, by the way. If fiction is the lie that tells the greater truth, don't forget the greater truth you once wanted to tell. When I speak of art as a moral act, I'm not espousing a primary colored moral vocabulary, a good guy, bad guy, white hat, black hat world, wherein Marcus Welby never loses a patient, the Mounties always get their man, America's always just, and the cops are never crooked, much less a president. <laughs> I mean that the production of art is a moral act whether we like it or not. That is to say, our work has moral implications, whether we intended to or not. What I am urging here is that we become conscious of these implications when we sit down to work, that we do not allow our work to leave our desks without casting a newly awakened critical eye over the finished text and demanding of ourselves, is this useful? Or am I merely chopping down more trees? I would argue, in fact, that the so-called Lip service morality found so often on television is not helpful. It not only creates a false and unenlightened view of reality, wherein cops are always honest and father knows best, but what is worse than a lie, such material is hypocrisy. In depicting such a world, television or film is not rendering life as it is or ought to be, but simply pandering to a set of arbitrary standards laid down by those in charge who want to keep audiences placid and mesmerized with weekly doses of bread and circuses, doses of non-stimulating, non-controversial, reassuring pap. They don't want you to feel bad. They don't want you to feel good. They don't want you to feel. They want to tranquilize you into buying the underarm deodorant. The hypocrisy of these efforts lies in the fact that no one believes them, certainly not the people creating them, writers, casts, and crews, as anything other than steady and possibly lucrative employment. The morality they espouse is about as soul-searching as that former television host now in the White House who knows his audience so well that he effectively addresses us in cliches, hackneyed banalities, trite aphorisms, and the euphemisms from Father Knows Best. For this, he is known as the great communicator. 
<laughs> but on the contrary, the truth I ask us to keep an eye on is never pure and rarely simple. Just finding the damn thing half the time is a bitch. It may require a lifetime of effort. I realize that I have been posing my thesis in largely negative terms, and that may be a mistake. Look at it the other way around. As writers, you have a glorious opportunity before you. As writers, you are not only expected to write, you are also supposed to think, to offer us above all what Joseph Conrad described as that uncalled-for glimpse of truth for which the rest of us have forgotten to ask. Conrad's aim, he said, above all, was to make us see. As expressors of ideas, you are on the front lines of communication. Films and television reach untold millions with your ideas. Those millions are starving for more than bread. This confers upon you a mighty responsibility. If your ideas are to reach and influence millions, it is incumbent upon you to come up with good ideas. Do not squander your opportunity by squandering yourselves. Do not demean yourselves by groveling after shekels in the mud, for the mud will cling long after the shekels are spent. In doing justice to yourselves, you do justice to the rest of us. Well, I promised you a short sermon, so I will end here somewhat confused, perhaps, but that's the way I started. I find the older I get, the fewer things I'm sure of. At least I, I didn't make you sing, have courage, my boy, to say no. Thank you. And if, if anybody does want to ask any questions, we don't have to stay on this topic. I've, I've said my piece, and if you want to know about the movies, uh, I'll tell you about them, too. Uh, my question is, uh, it strikes me that the uh, TV miniseries, uh, miniseries, The Day After... Uh, it wasn't a miniseries, parenthetically. It was just one night, two hours. funny, I was, uh, <laughs> I was in the cutting room working on the day after. This was, must have been March of, what year did the day after come out? Was that 84 or 84? 83? In, in March of 80, 83, I was sitting in the cutting room and the president had a press conference on the, on the radio and I was chopping away and listening and, and uh, he, he was talking about the military and the need to beef up and so forth and he said, you know, I've been thinking a lot recently. Wouldn't it be better if we could live in a world that was free of fear and terror and nuclear... And I'm, I stopped cutting. I said, what, what's coming here? Something amazing. <laughs> but I had no idea. You know, in the next words, I said, I envision you know, this great plastic umbrella that's going to... Uh, so I guess I heard about Star Wars, to answer your, your question, while I was editing the film. And I, I may say that for about 30 seconds there while he paused or while he was building up to it, I thought, you know, maybe some incredible regeneration of common sense was uh, had about to afflict him, but... Uh, no, what was really startling about it was the, um, 
when we made the film, you know, we, we made it because we thought it was the right thing to do, but we didn't expect anybody to watch it, and we didn't expect the kind of attention that it got. People said, well, they hyped the hell out of it, and the answer is no, they didn't. The, the press hyped the hell out of it. I mean, you, contrary to whatever anybody thinks, you cannot buy the cover of uh, Newsweek, at least not for the money we had. So uh, we were astonished by the, by the hoopla, and uh, I have a friend who's a, a, a childhood friend of mine who has worked uh, related to the State Department. He's a psychoanalyst, and he specializes in the psychology of terrorists and all sorts of emergency scenarios. And, he broke with the State Department after Carter let the Shah into the United States, saying, you have no idea what you've just done. But he sort of serves on call to them. So he was my sort of pipeline into inside, inside Washington. He got a call one day saying, we want you to come down to the Pentagon right now. The Joint Chiefs of Staff are going to watch a movie. We want you to be there when they watch this movie. So there was my friend sitting there with all these guys with fruit salad watching uh, the, the day after. And he said, you know, I know the guy who made this. And they said, well, is he a flake? Is he a commie? And they said, no, no, he's a real red-blooded American guy. Uh, and then they sat down and watched the movie, and he said there was dead silence. Nobody laughed, nobody snickered, nobody called it names. And those guys were upset by it. And David Gergen, who was then the White House press secretary, was also at the screening, and said, well, the president has now seen it twice. What are we going to do? We have to counter this thing. And he said, well... The biggest mistake you can make, since nobody here is calling them on anything, is to impugn its accuracy. As we all know, if it's anything, it's the optimist's view of nuclear war. If they got any of their facts wrong, you know, we didn't include nuclear winter, for example, because nuclear winter hadn't come out when we were making the movie. So we, we, we could have had nuclear winter, but we didn't know. Um, nonetheless, it's still the optimist's view of nuclear war, is that if it's inaccurate anything, it's not the way you'd like to have it be known. So... Uh, you, you better try to co-opt it in some way. That's the verb. Um, and they said, uh, you know, and, and what they did was they decided we must put on a representative of our own after the screening right away. Never mind the news conference afterwards. Somebody's got to get out and stroke everybody and say it's okay. And then they went round and round about who was to put on, they should put on. And they were going to put on Gene Kirkpatrick, and I wish they had. But... My friend, and I, at that moment I didn't think he was my friend, said, you, you guys have to be nuts, and he persuaded him to put on, you know, George. Um, and then they said, well, this movie proves that we need all these defenses. We need the, you know, the Peacekeeper uh, missile and, and Star Wars, and so this can never happen. Which I guess I've, is more or less what I expected. I think that the movies, what the movie did was very limited, but maybe not insignificant. It took the subject of nuclear war out of everybody's closet and dumped it on the coffee table. And so that after 30 years of pretending that this is not the number one problem in the world, at least we now understand that. And I guess as, as a contributor to that accomplishment, I, you know, that's the way I view it. it. I guess it didn't really rattle them all that much. Rattle them enough to put somebody on TV. TV can cancel out TV. That's what we learned from that. Well, thank you. Oh, sorry. Can you give us a little background on putting it together and how you got it on to the television networks? It might help us in trying to get some of our work in and on. Um, yeah, very easily. It was not my idea. It was 
believe it or not, the idea of ABC television to make a movie about nuclear war. Um, the, the man who's the president of ABC Circle Films is a very interesting man named Brandon Stoddard. And despite all the cliches that, and jokes that we make about Hollywood, uh, as I'm sure you probably know, there are interesting and decent men and women who are also intelligent who work there, and in this case also courageous. Brandon Stoddard went and saw the movie The China Syndrome, which was about a meltdown at a nuclear plant, and came home and was very impressed by it. This is the story I heard, anyway. And decided that he wanted to uh, make a film about nuclear war. And uh, he hired a producer named Robert Papazian, very well-known television producer. And they commissioned a writer named uh, Edward Hume, who lives in Massachusetts, uh, to write a, a screenplay. Originally, it was conceived as a four-hour two-night event, which is perhaps why some people think of it as a miniseries, because I think they originally advertised it that way. Um, in fact, four hours, two nights means three hours of film, or an hour and a half of film a night, and 30 minutes of commercials. When I was offered the film, and I was the fourth director who was offered it, because I think nobody in their right mind, including me, really wanted to do it, um, I first thing I suggested was that the screenplay was padded by an hour. I said, no one's going to tune in for night number two of Armageddon. Why don't we just sock them once between the eyes at, you know, from eight to ten? And uh, I said, this has been padded. And they said, uh, my boy, you don't understand the economic realities of television. While we do not expect to make any money on this film, there is a limit to how much we can afford to lose the hour of television that you propose cutting out represents significant advertising revenue that would go a large way toward defraying the budget of, this, of making this movie. And I said, oh, oh. So we went and filmed the padded version, the three-hour version of film. And then when they found that all the red-blooded capitalists in this country refused to advertise for the film, you know, General Foods, General Mills, General Motors, all the generals uh, went the other way. And they were sort of coming close to really giving bargain basement rates for ads. Then I went back and I said, now can we cut the hour you know, out of it? Of course, it's a lot harder to cut an hour out of something you've already shot than, bef than before you shoot it, which may account for some parts of the film look as though it was edited by the chainsaw, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It was a little bumpy in a couple of places, but that's how it came to be. I must say, in retrospect, I consider that, not even in retrospect, once I really got into it and was doing it, that I was very grateful, I was pathetically grateful that they allowed me to make this movie, and I was even grateful to the three directors who turned it down. As, as morally superior as I might like to, to feel, and as professionally stupid as I thought they were to miss such an opportunity, I still felt that it was probably the most useful thing I was ever going to get a chance to do with my life. And I was real thankful that I got to do it. And, you know, it, television is a very strange place. I've never, I never had anything to do with it really before or since I, I wrote television movies, but, uh, you know, we've all had to turn tricks. Um, <laughs> so you have to reconcile this with a part of my speech. You know, it's very, very easy for a person to stand up and say, don't eat until you've set the table. Well, that's fine, except that the people you know, you're talking to are, haven't had a bite in four days. It's, those niceties like washing up may seem superfluous. Um, 
let's say I haven't had to do more TV than I than I could possibly manage to get away with it without having done. Nick, will you talk about volunteers? Volunteers is a comedy about the Peace Corps in Thailand, so of course we filmed it in Mexico. Uh, we found there's places in Mexico that look like Thailand, but they're not quite so far away. And, it, and uh, making a movie on location is a bit like planning a picnic on Mars. Once you get going, there's no turning back for the salt, so Mexico seemed more reasonable than, than Thailand. It's a film, it's a, a comedy, at least I, I hope it's a comedy. It hasn't come out yet, so we, we don't know. But it's, uh, it's intended to be a comedy, let's put it that way, about a young wastrel who's in his, about to be graduated from Yale in 1962, and he is the son of New England Brahmins, incredibly wealthy and very, very spoiled, and only thinks about uh, gambling and, and women and very little about anything or anyone else. And uh, before graduation, he bets on the Lakers when he should have bet on the Celtics, $28,000, and he loses. And his father, thinking this will teach him a lesson, refuses to pay the bookmaker who's on his way to put him in cement. <clears throat> in order to avoid this, he literally talks his way onto an airplane carrying Peace Corps volunteers to Bangkok. He knows that's where his roommate was headed, changes places with his roommate, and eventually winds up in the poorest village in the world, in the Golden Triangle in northern Thailand. He arrives there in a white dinner jacket because his parents had been giving him a graduation uh, party when the mayor had hit the fan. Uh, and there's two other Peace Corps volunteers in this village. One is a very idealistic Jewish girl from Long Island who sleeps with a copy of Profiles and Courage. <laughs> and the other is a hyperkinetically active fellow from Washington State who who was named Youth of the Year in Tacoma twice, but <laughs> it's played by John Candy in the movie. It's very funny. Uh, and they're, they're told that their job in this village is to build a bridge across the river that's next to the village. So they and we built the longest wood suspension bridge in the world. And after they build it, they find out that the only people who intend to profit from this bridge is an opium warlord, Chinese communist guerrillas, and the CIA. <clears throat> and that this is a very misguided effort. And then the movie is about what they decide to, to do. You have to pay money to find out. <laughs> anyway, it's a funny movie, but also somewhere in the movie I thought when I read it was, well, you know, it's somewhere buried beneath all these farcical elements. Uh, it's a movie where people read subtitles that are their own, which I've always wanted to do in a movie. So it gives you an idea of some of the level of the humor, but underneath all that, I didn't get a laugh. Um, it's the subjects of altruism and selfishness as something less than the polar extremes we usually think they are. Uh, is dwelt upon, or touched upon, or glanced upon, or maybe absolutely backed into. But uh, that's what appealed to me about it. In fact, there was even a line in the movie, it's not there anymore, where the, the idealistic Jewish girl and the, and the rich New England boy are talking, and uh, she says, you know, you're only here because you're running away. 
and he says, I, she says, I don't think the motives of anybody should be the test of, of uh, characters. People build hospitals just to see their names on the outside, but that doesn't stop the sick from being healed. Altruism is often just a higher form of selfishness, whereupon she leaps up irate. This is my scene I wrote. It's all gone. Um, and she says, I'm not altruistic. I'm here because helping these people makes me feel better. And he says, which is the most selfish thing I ever heard. So somewhere, you know, the, the, in writing a screenplay, you know, I, I, I feel that the attrition rate for dialogue in a movie between the time you write it and the time the movie hits the theater is about 50%. 50% of what you write is going to go. And you can only hope that like the amputee who still feels sensation in the cut-off limb, that some sensibility of that kind of stuff remains. And I, I don't know if it, if it will or not. That's what I was going to ask. Is there, I work in film production. I was wondering if there are any keys you could give us on... Um, elements to look to to hope that they don't get rampaged in you know in production there's an element between dialogue and your narrative is very brief when you're setting the scene are there any elements you can give us as to well you raise a broad question for those of you who didn't hear it if what, I you know, what works that, that, what is key how can you keep your the things that mean something to you in into a finished script yes. um, this is a complicated question first let me divide television from film because there are vastly different considerations. American television, as I'm sure you know, is censored. Now, they don't call it a censor. That's been censored. They call it um, standards and practices. Isn't that good? Standards and practices. Standards and practices is you have a conversation with people who look like prunes. <laughs> I, I know this. I only had it happen once. I had it on the day after. When one day Mr. Papazian said to me, now it's time we go and have this meeting with standards and practices. I said, what's that? He described that. I said, a censor. You're talking about a censor. He says, well, yes. I said, then say censor. We're having a conversation with a censor? Why? And he says, because before they allow you to film a script, uh, they go through it and they tell you what you can and can't film. I was in the car by this time. We're driving over there, and I thought about this, and I said, I don't think I can do this. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, if you were going to censor this script, the time to do it was before you offered it to me, and I accepted to film it, not after. I accepted to film this script. Now you're telling me you're going to pull stuff out? I have to tell you, Bob, that I can't, be, I can't promise to abide by anything that goes on in this meeting. And he laughed. We went and we had this meeting. And... Somewhere they were reconciled now to the idea that the movie was about nuclear war. <laughs> so I didn't have to fight that battle, but they were absolutely adamant that a young woman who had purchased a diaphragm could not do so in this movie. They were crazed about the diaphragm. <laughs> and I said, why not? I said, is it because it might appear that we endorsed birth control devices. <laughs> I said, that's very rococo. I mean, doesn't... Uh, <clears throat> you know, and I said I wasn't going to get into the argument with myself. I was going to sit there and let them say it and go off. And, and, but irresistibly, because the logic is so famish. You say, <clears throat> where does it imply an endorsement of birth control? In fact, later in the movie, the young girl comes to bitterly regret that she was not found. She wished she were pregnant. I said, so if anything, you guys come out four square on the side of the Vatican. <laughs> um, and they said, well, 
Couldn't we just change the scene so she's trying to make up her mind whether or not to go to bed with the guy? I said, you mean you endorse premarital sex? <laughs> when you out-argue them, they look at the ground, the floor, and they sigh, and they say, out. Like that. I said nothing. I said nothing. Then I went and filmed it. We were in Kansas filming it. You could hear a shriek all the way from Los Angeles without the phone. And after dailies, you know, the phone rang and they said, Nick, Nick, you had the meeting with the standards and practices you promised. I said, I said nothing. I said nothing. I listened. Um, I said, but I, this was the script you offered me and this is the script I'm filming. I said, however, I said, I can make this simple for you. Fire me. I said, I don't want to be here. This is my good deed for the century, making this movie. Kansas in August is not corny, it's hot. I'll leave. I'll, I'll take my stars, my editor, and my cameraman who will all walk with me. It's up to you. Two weeks, you can start over. I said, we'll get back to you. I hung up and forgot about it. The next day, in a, in a Kansas farmhouse, you know, on some housewife's phone, with, with 20 of them on speaker phones, right, on the other there was Nick, Nick, look, it's your movie, you film it the way you see fit, blah, blah, blah. However, corporately, we are advised to tell you, officially, that that scene is not in the movie. I said, fine. And of course, the fact is that they liked the scene because it was rather taste, it was tasteful, it was funny. You had to be real quick or you didn't even understand that it was a diaphragm since the word, God forbid, was never even mentioned. And it stayed in the movie, so they can overrule themselves if they want. And more experienced practitioners than I in television will tell you that they deliberately write in fucks and shits and goddams and all sorts of stuff so that people will miss. You know, they, they, they trade off. They deliberately load it in order to protect the stuff that you're talking about that you think is important. They put into the script all sorts of, of, of diversions and camouflage and I don't know the right word. That I'm and they say, well, you can't have this shit and then you make a big fight about that. And meanwhile, there was a goddamn that snuck through on the page before they didn't notice. <laughs> Now that's television, and it would be, as Mark Twain said, funny if it weren't mortal. Uh, movies is a different kettle of fish. Movies, for really all practical purposes, there's no censorship in movies. Loosely, when you undertake to make a film, they'll tell you, we want this film to be a PG or a PG-13 or an R, but you go into it knowing that, and it's up to you to... to uh, and no one censors the script before it starts. However, there is another... I guess they do a dynamic. I don't know if, if, it, if it's... Is the dynamic like tactic? I mean, tactic is... There's no singular. It's tactics or... Statistic. There's no statistics. Statistics. Comparative figures. But let me use the word dynamic for a moment. There's another dynamic at work, making a, making a movie. And it also applies to television. It has nothing to do with censorship in any official sense. And that is simply that the screenplay for a film, like the text of a play, is a blueprint like the blueprint for a building. And there's, I would venture to say, although I'm not an architect, no blueprint so perfectly constructed that it has never needed revision when the contractor started to build it. And what happens is you can look at a script and you can go over it and over it and over it again and pull out everything you think you don't need and pare it down and pare it down and pare it down. And then you film it. And then you cut each scene together as perfectly as you can so that every moment in the movie 
plays the way you think it is. Then you stick all the scenes together and you look at the movie and it is invariably terrible. First cuts are terrible. It's a maxim that no movie is ever as good as its dailies or as bad as its first cut. The first cut, you look there and you think that, you know, suicide would be nice if you only had the nerve. And what has happened is that the thing takes on a life of its own. It's the same thing if you were a novelist and I suspect a poet. There is a moment when the body on the table starts to breathe. And now you have created whatever it is you have created and it has a life of its own. And it's very hard to make characters do things that they don't want to do because of some superimposed thematic or schematic grid. And even to lesser extent and tiny detail, you will find that when you take out your movie and screen it, the audience is way ahead of you. And logical links and connections and even wonderful lines are suddenly either superfluous or redundant or patronizing uh, and you take them out. Um, there is some live interaction. I wrote my speech, but I amended it while I was talking because of what I was, the perceived dynamics that were going on here. And you, it's very hard to tell you how to protect your text against that. Um, I once heard that, that Jack Nicholson told somebody I know who was working on a movie of his, he used the line, throw away your darlings. Which meant that they're those things that you are just in love with. And you have to be ruthless enough to perceive whether independent of your love they do or do not belong. And there's no guarantee against that. Throw away your darlings. This is true not only of writing movies and what happens in the process of movies, but plays or books. You get an idea, a central idea. I don't know what it is. Man discovers boy in bed with dog. I don't know what it is, but whatever this compelling image is, it catalyzes, it provokes an entire story, play, movie, opera, what have you. And when you have finished writing it, the one thing that no longer belongs in it is the scene with the man, the boy, and the dog. And that's a hard one. You feel a vague sense of disloyalty to something, maybe yourself, when that scene has to come out. My advice is to put it in a drawer, save it for something else, and you'll see if you work it in. There are lines which I continually try to work into <laughs> movies, you know, and most of the time it comes out. And I have to watch because I have a tendency to sermonize, as if you couldn't tell. Uh, so that all that dialogue about, about uh, altruism and selfishness one hopes one got it in through the characters rather than suddenly George Bernard Shaw making an appearance in this John Candy movie. Um, I wonder if you've seen the British I have not seen it. I understand it's vastly superior to the day after, which does not astonish me because I think British television tends to be better. Uh, I wasn't around to see it when it was on, and I was also frightened to see it I suppose frightened, A, because of nuclear war scares me, and B, that my ego would take a battering because they did it better. What an honest answer. I can't believe it. <laughs> That's an honest answer, but uh, your picture was better than Fred. Well, I didn't see it, so I, you know, I, I can't even venture a non-objective opinion. Although it's true, I do discuss books I haven't read with great fervor. I, <laughs> Then everybody does. We used to have contests at my house to, that you were supposed to name things that you'd never read that people all expected you to read and the, and the object was that no one else was allowed to groan. 
when you would say, I've never read, you know, X, and then you... I digress. Uh, could you tell us your background, the steps and changes in your career, and how you get from doing a dumb or gross poop? <laughs> I didn't keep from doing one. Uh, no, I didn't do that, but everybody, everybody has a guilty secret, you know. Um, my background is uh, simple. I'm your basic New York psychoanalyst son. Uh, I was born in New York in 1945 and raised in Manhattan, and uh, my parents used to read to me which may be why I speak English. And uh, I went to the University of Iowa, which is where I continued to speak English because I am a product of the Writers' Workshop, of whom I think the director of the workshop is here, Blackjack Leggett. Uh, so everything I am, I owe to my school, for, for better or worse. Um, and I will say, sort of tangentially, that I'm lucky and I know it. Napoleon was once asked, it was somebody recommended a general, said he was a brilliant general, Napoleon said, yeah, but is he lucky? <laughs> I'm extremely lucky. And a lot of my, my comments and my refusal to do this and that stem from having been extremely lucky. I was kind of doing all right, writing screenplays and doing the best I can. That's the Nancy Reagan line, I just tell him we're doing the best we can. We were doing the best we could. <laughs> Uh, and I, I had a chance, this is, this is the guilty secret part, um, I, I had an agent, which was also lucky, and they sent me out to meet these two independent producers, uh, that's a wonderful phrase, independent producers, um, uh, who had offices on the Warner lot, and they said, we want to do a movie where men are the victims instead of women. It's kind of an exploitation movie, but that would be the idea. And I, I said, gee, that sounds great. I was starving. And, uh, but it, it did, I did like the idea, because I remembered there was a lady who had written into the New York Times after seeing Alfred Hitchcock's Frenzy, which had offended her mightily, and said, just once, I'd like to see the man's eyes widen in fear instead of the woman. I thought, I'm going to write a movie for her. At least that's how I rationalized it to myself. So I wrote a movie which was originally called The Honey Factor. This is a sad story. And The Honey Factor was about a giant research and development corporation somewhere in rural California where there were an awful lot of brainy people with a lot of time on their hands. And all of a sudden the, the men in the town start dropping dead from sexual intercourse. <laughs> And the women are becoming rosy and redolent with health. <laughs> Men have to go onto the buddy system. Right? They can't be left alone. And it turned out, see, that some experiment in their entomological department had gone awry and that these ladies were all sort of hybrid queen bees. And that, see, when they, queen bee mates, the drone dies. And uh, I wrote this with, uh, with whatever elan I was capable of bringing to it at age 26. And was persuaded 
that I had written a movie that could play Cinema One on Third Avenue or the Paramus Drive-In and had something to say to each. <laughs> then I made my, my big mistake. And I can tell you right now what this is so none of you make it. Is, do not visit your parents during pre-production. <laughs> yeah, I said it was like having a, a picnic on Mars. You know, pre-production is when they stuff the hamper. So uh, I went home for Christmas, you know, and they were very happy with my script. And I came back and, uh, and uh, I met one of the producers. I said, how's it going? He said, fine, fine. He said, um, actually, you know, Nick, a screenplay is really like a blueprint for a, for a building. And there's never been a blueprint that's so perfect that it wasn't capable of some adjustment. You understand what I'm saying? I was like, sure, sure. So we, we made a, you know, a few uh, adjustments. I said, what do you mean? And I said, I said could, I, could I read it? He said, absolutely, here. So I read it. It's no longer called The Honey Factor, which you can now see was a very clever title after the fact. It was called The Invasion of the B-E-E Girls. It's about such a spelling. <laughs> Screenplay by Nicholas Meyer and Sylvia Schnebly. I said, who, who is Sylvia Sch Schnebly? <laughs> well, it doesn't much matter who she was, but it's just somebody trying to get ahead. So I called up my agent, and I said, a terrible thing has happened. And I told him, I said, you've got to take my name off. This is a piece of crap. He said, no, no, no. He said, we've got to get her name off it. <laughs> I said, huh, you don't understand. I, I said, this is really, you know, terrible. And he said, no, you don't understand. You need the credit. Now, what you may not know in Hollywood is that uh, in Hollywood, screenplays with more than one name on them or when more than one person has contributed. In Hollywood, you know, it's writing is sometimes a team effort. Sometimes the teams know each other, sometimes they don't. Uh, but if you have all these names, it goes to the Writers Guild and it goes to arbitration. I've been on the arbitrating committee and basically several times I've read these arbitrations. I know what they are. They send you 16 different drafts of a movie. You know, one of those uh, pure later courier <laughs> delivers it. It's a big thing. 16 different drafts written by five different people, each with egos the size of houses who have written accompanying statements declaring why they and they alone should be credited. And if you are a conscientious sod, you sit there and plow through the 16 drafts, trying to remember which is wit and who's responsible for what. And you write in your, your vote. If you're the second writer hired on a project, and you really want to be clever and enhance your chances of getting credit, one thing, this is a really dirty trick, so I tell you all now so you be sure never to do this. <laughs> and I'm not being facetious, because it's one of the lowest tricks, is you change all the names of the characters. Then somebody who is less than a conscientious sod who is thumbing through this thing says, oh, well, look, they're all different people in here. In any case, she didn't know that trick. 
And also, she hadn't really changed my script, she'd just wrecked it. So I still got my solo credit, and that's my dirty little secret. It's also true that I, I, never, I never saw the film. Um, I, I, I uh, thank you. Uh, I, I did, I, I, I did slug the producer. I, I hit him. And uh, as he held his mouth and the other one scuttled behind a desk, and I couldn't believe I'd done that. <laughs> he said to me a classic line, and not a lot of people say this, and you actually hear it, you'll never work in this town again. <laughs> Now he sees me and he always shakes my hand and smiles and Hollywood's a place with selective memory, I suppose. Uh, but I did find out from a friend where it was shooting, shooting in Valencia up by Cal Arts, and feeling very much like a, an abandoned child or something, I, I went out there and watched them do this and I remembered that they were shooting a close-up of two people talking. It was actually not a close-up, it was a medium shot. It was like, it was somewhere in there two people talking. And the actor who was talking was rocking back and forth on his heels like this. You can almost see the effect with this thing cutting me off. He was talking. And I knew this wasn't going to be a good film. <laughs> so I, I didn't see it. Uh, I am ashamed of it. Um, the trick, I think, or the thing to think about it's not whether or not you have to do something to get started, but what happens when you keep doing it. My definition of a hack, among other things, is something that somebody finds something that they're good at and they keep doing it. Your job as an artist, which may be in conflict with your jobs as, as commercial practitioners, is to stretch yourselves. You know, and if I went on writing soft porn movies, uh, that wouldn't be good. And... If you, you know, go on writing episodic television and you say, well, I'll do it once because it'll $18,000 an episode, you know, I can pay off the car. And then you say, well, I, I do it again just once because I need a, a dishwasher. Whatever it is, whatever those rationalizations are. I'm not saying that it's easy to do what I'm saying. But I'm such a... I'm not a businessman. I don't understand money, which is very lucky for me because if I understood it, I might be more attracted by it. All I know is if I have enough money to... to pay for the car and keep it gassed up and do my laundry. I'm happy and I live well. I don't live badly. But my, my tastes are not extravagant, so I don't go searching around very hard for the means to support those tastes. Which could change. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, 30, I'm, I'm 39, I'm almost 40, and I'm starting to think it's not going to. For which I'm extremely grateful, because... That place can be a gilded cage. You step in there. I remember that the day after Star Trek came out and opened to the biggest weekend grosses in the history of movies, I went over with my producer to somebody's house and we were playing tennis. And this house was palatial. It had a swimming pool, it was a Rolls Royce. That had, it was an incredible house. I said, whose house is this? He says, guy writes taxi. I said, we're in the wrong business. Okay, uh, so the thing you have to know about me, or you don't have to, but I'll tell you, is that uh, I'm a very slow thinker. Uh, 
I talk fast, but I think slow, and all the things I'm saying up here are things I've thought of before, which is why they come out fast. <laughs> so it takes me ages and ages to write anything, because it takes me a long time to think up an idea, and most of my ideas stink. So that's why my output is kind of small. I always envy people who've just got another book waiting to go in another movie. Brian De Palma always directing. I, I, I can't do it. Um, when I was 13 years old or whatever, I read the Sherlock Holmes stories and was completely captivated. And if people here have not read Conan Doyle in the original English, as opposed to the Basil Rathbone nonsense, I suggest you do it because they're, they are wonderful stories and examples of short stories. There's a cartoon of a 13-year-old boy reading the last Sherlock Holmes story of the series, The Final Problem, with a look of dismay on his face, and the caption is, Life's Darkest Hour. And I think for many people who read Sherlock Holmes stories with great affection, as I did, it was indeed life's darkest hour when those 56 short stories and four novellas came to an end, and there's always been an irresistible impulse to write your own, to do more. And when I was a kid, uh, I was greatly captivated by the... This is a long story. And just wave me off if it starts to get too long. Um, I was greatly captivated by My Fair Lady. That was all the rage when I was a kid, and we all had the phonograph album and went to see the show. And as I looked at it, and then I later learned it was based on a play by Bernard Shaw called Pygmalion. And then I looked at that because there's a movie of it. And I said, George Bernard Shaw was stealing from Arthur Conan Doyle. Henry Higgins is a ripoff of Sherlock Holmes, even to his last name, even to his misogynistic temperament, and the fact that he is a deducer. He only deduces how people, where people were born from the way they speak. But instead of Dr. Watson just back from Afghanistan, he has Colonel Pickering just back from India. Instead of living at 21B Baker Street, he lives at 27A Wimpole Street. Instead of Mrs. Hudson, the landlady, there's Mrs. Pierce, the landlady. It was all a ripoff. And I thought, if that's true, and there was no doubt in my mind that it was, and there's no doubt in yours now either. <laughs> and Pygmalion made a successful musical. I thought Sherlock Holmes ought to make a great musical. I was about 15 when this insight penetrated the ivory dome. But 15-year-old kids don't get to write Broadway musicals. My big mistake was being at a cocktail party that my parents took me to, and I bent the ear of a famous Broadway producer whom I had met, telling him my idea. And three weeks later, I saw in the paper Alexander H. Cohen negotiating with the Conan Doyle estate to mount a musical about Sherlock Holmes tentatively titled Baker Street. I complained to my father. He said, what do you want, your kid? <laughs> I was a freshman at Iowa when the show opened with uh, Fritz Weaver and Inga Swenson and Martin Gable. It was not a success. He sent me a telegram and said, congratulations. Knew they couldn't do it without you. <laughs> but I, that kind of soured me on the whole Sherlock Holmes thing for quite a while. And I got reinterested in my 20s in Sherlock Holmes. I reread them. I got into a conversation with somebody who started talking about Holmes, and I said I knew them, and they said, oh, you do? Where was Watson wounded? What was his middle name? Why is Mrs. Hudson sometimes called Mrs. Turner? I didn't know any of that, so I wound up rereading them, and I was delighting in them again. This time, Holmes was reminding me of somebody else. People used to say to me, 
Your father's a shrink. Is he a Freudian? I didn't know. So I asked him, I said, are you a Freudian? He said, it's a silly question. I said, why? He said, because it is no more possible to discuss the history of psychoanalysis without beginning with Freud than it is to discuss the history of the discovery of America without starting with Columbus or the Vikings, take your pick. But to suppose that nothing has happened since Columbus or that nothing has happened since Freud is very rigid, very doctrinaire. When a patient comes to see me, I look at how they're dressed and how they're carrying themselves. I listen to what they say. I listen to how they say it. I try to hear what they are not saying, what Richard II calls the daintiness of ear. And then I try to draw some conclusions about why they're not happy. And against this, I apply a background of some clinical expertise. I said, that sounds like detective work. He says, very much like detective work. Now I knew who Sherlock Holmes reminded me of. He reminded me of my father. <laughs> I could have also had him meet Konstantin Stanislavski because that's very similar, but I don't think the dates were the same. Because originally I started to think about writing a nonfiction book about the psychological appeal of detective literature. That was where I was thinking I was going. And because detective literature is interesting, it, it delivers exactly the opposite of what it promises promises chills and thrills and things that go bump and and the body lying at an unnatural angle, the head bashed in from a blunt instrument, the lurid covers, murder and mayhem. We, we read this stuff in bed. <laughs> Cuddled up. Cozy, we call it. I like to curl up with a good mystery. How can that be? There's, there's Something is contradictory. <laughs> and the answer, I think, is that detective literature delivers exactly the opposite of what it promises. It is as formal as an English sonnet that although it appears to imitate life, it actually uh, elucidates, it explains life. In detective literature, nothing ever happens without a reason. In life, you're walking down the street, you fall into a manhole cover, you slip and die. It makes no sense, cosmic. That never happens in a detective story. Everything, as the detective is frequently fond of saying it, it all adds up. So maybe that's why people like it, because they, they like its reassuring quality. So I was off on that tangent, and, I, and then I started to think about where Doyle fit into that. And I started wondering if Doyle ever knew Freud. Well, that's not so strange, because they died within nine years of each other in London, where Freud was living as a refugee. Then I remembered something else, which was that Sherlock Holmes was a cocaine addict. And Freud had written about cocaine, I discovered, with two other doctors named Königstein and Kurler, cocaine for use as anesthetic during eye surgery. Then I remembered that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, was a doctor and what's more, an ophthalmologist, and what's more, he spent six months studying ophthalmology in Vienna. <laughs> and at that point, that's how the story, that's, that's how the book originated. It only took 15 years, because um, it was slow and I spent years wandering down the wrong way. Uh, I wrote the screenplay for the movie, and uh, I like the movie very much, except for my part of it, um, which is, it was the first big screenplay I ever wrote, and it's got too much talk, I think. Uh, I would, and it was an odd situation, because usually it's the director who turns to the writer and says, I'm very sorry, kid, but your, your line, your scene has to go. And, and here, Herb Ross, who had such respect almost bordering on awe for the written word, the writer, I kept saying, can't we pull this out? You don't, 
You don't need this. And he would get very upset. At the end of the movie, when Freud hypnotizes Holmes for the last time and reveals a lot of stuff about his, his past, all of which is illustrated by the film, I had written a speech about yay long, where Freud says, now we understand. We understand why he's a detective. We understand why he uses cocaine. We understand why he's frightened of women, and so on and so on and so on. And at that point, Watson says, you're the greatest detective of them all. And the actor, Alan Arkin, playing Freud, did something so wonderful at the beginning of the speech. First lines of the speech were, it becomes clear. And he went like this. And I said, cut the speech. He said, what? I said, cut the speech, cut the speech. The audience is already there. We just saw it. Why does he have to repeat it? Just cut, it goes like this. It becomes clear. And the other guy says, you're the greatest detective of them all. And he wouldn't let me do it. He said, wonderful word, I forgot it. He said, you're deballing your script. <laughs> it's different from castrating, but I'm not sure how I said You're deballing your script. He wouldn't let me do it. And we had little battles like that. Um, but aside from the fact that I wrote too many words, I love the acting. I love the look of it. I think it's a handsome movie. And I think it's a smart movie. And every time you get to make a smart movie, you know, you can be very uh, relieved and feel a little good. I don't think it was a waste of silver nitrate. Um, and I did write another Sherlock Holmes story, a very different one. Originally, I wasn't going to do it. And uh, I did it for a couple of reasons. I had met Francis Coppola, and I said, why did you do Godfather 2? And he said, well, I did it for a number of reasons, not the least of which was that there were certain rules and strictures about Godfather 1 that I couldn't get beyond, and there were certain things, morally speaking, that disturbed me about it. And I also wanted to see if I could go back to the well again and make lightning strike twice. I thought that was interesting, that you could correct mistakes, you could do something better, and you could also test yourself to see if you could do it again. But I still hadn't make up my, made up my mind to do that. But I had uh, a conversation with another director named Ulu Grossbart, whom I was talking to at a party, and we were, we were talking, and he said, you should do it, and I'll tell you why. Because artists live very uncertain economic existences. You may go for a long time without any kind of income or sizable income. And what this do will give you the right to fail. You won't go, you won't starve. You take a lot of money, you do this. It's not like, you know, they're asking you to molest children here. Just write another Sherlock Holmes story. Conan Doyle did it 60 times. Do another one, take the money, and you have bought yourself the right to experiment on something else. And I have. I've written other books. They've not been as successful, parenthetically. But at least I had the satisfaction of being able to write them. And I'd like to think that the West End horror, for some reason or other, could be said to have paid for Confessions of a Homing Pigeon. A book which you haven't heard of, but which meant a lot to me. No, because then you start becoming a hack. Then you say, well, this is all I can do. This is all the public wants me for. And I say no. I never say never, because 20 years from now, if we haven't blown ourselves to bits, I may feel frisky and want to do one again, because I do them better than anybody else, I think. But I know I can do that. So where's the, you know, that, that's my feeling about it anyway. Conan Doyle didn't just write Sherlock Holmes stories. In fact, the stories, he, he tried to kill off Holmes after about 15 stories by throwing him off a waterfall. Uh, it's interesting that he didn't bother to produce a body, which is the usual way you make sure someone's dead. Uh, 
he thought, among other things, he wrote historical novels, and he also wrote science fiction. He, his novel, The Lost World, has been made into a movie, I think, five times, never very well. But it's definitely the prototype for King Kong. He also wrote medieval romances and historical novels, of which his most famous is a novel called The White Company, which was published in this country, I think, not so, in this century by Scribner's, with beautiful illustrations by Andrew Wyeth's father, N.C. Wyeth, which is The White Company, in my opinion, is the great medieval romance. I mean, that, that anybody can read, and I exclude Walter Scott, which is kind of heavy going. Um, and it was John Ford's favorite novel. He always wanted to make it into a movie. And even John Ford couldn't get that made. Um, but he wrote a lot of other stuff. So I can't think of him as a hack. Interestingly enough, the first time he was going to kill him off was after seven stories. And Doyle's mother, who survived all his life and exercised considerable influence over she was known as the ma'am. She forbade it. She forbade him to kill Sherlock Holmes. A lot of people don't see the relationship between Holmes and Doyle. Doyle's big bluff bear of a man and Holmes lean and ascetic and they say, well, there's really not very similar. Doyle was married twice. It's interesting though because they, uh, Holmes tells Watson that he's descended from the sister of the French painter Vernet. Of course, Holmes being fictional isn't descended from anybody. But Doyle was descended from the sister of Vernet. And they both bank at the same bank. And they're both offered knighthoods in the same month of the same year. And Arthur Conan Doyle didn't want to accept his knighthood. He thought it would make him an establishment spokesman. But his mother, the ma'am, said that he must do it because otherwise he might offend uh, the queen. So he did it. It's interesting to note that Sherlock Holmes, about whose mother we hear not a blessed syllable, turns down his knighthood without a backward glance. And you can begin to see now the, the relationship between these two men. Here was Doyle in a life surrounded by women. And Holmes could be as misogynistic as he wanted. And you can also see that Holmes served as a kind of an emotional steam governor for a lot of Doyle's repressed feelings and things he wanted to say. And that when Doyle was feeling finally good enough and secure enough and well enough and rich enough, he killed him off. But he didn't produce a body because somewhere he thought maybe, <laughs> never say never, the time may come when I need him again. And if you look at the chronology and if my theory would be correct, then the reappearance of Sherlock Holmes 10 years after he, he was killed off ought to coincide with some emotional trauma of Doyle's. And I think when you see that his wife died after a long illness uh, and then Sherlock Holmes starts to come back, that there is some validity to this connection. Doyle himself was completely sort of willfully obtuse about Holmes' appeal. He never quite, he professed never not to get it. Somebody sent a bill from his tailor to, to, to Doyle addressed to Sir Sherlock Holmes. He didn't think it was funny. Wouldn't be the first time. And for the moment, it's both. Um, I'm I'm very lucky. I've I've mentioned that before, and it's not unimportant. I'm lucky because people let me direct movies, which is a tremendous amount of fun. It is backbreaking physical labor, 
but it is much easier than writing. It is a lot of fun. Any fool can direct the movie, only if it takes a little something <laughs> if you want to direct a good one. That's another topic. But anybody can do it. And as long as I can do it and get away with it, it's a real interesting way to see the world and meet wonderful people and go places and they, they pay you money for it and maybe you can make a movie that's about something good. I, I don't make as many movies as some other people because I am, I think, pretty choosy about what I'll do. Uh, at the same time, you can OD on the people. You, you can, by the time you're finished with a movie, you're, you're ready to be by yourself a while. And so then that would be good to, to write a book. And then by the end of the book, if you have cabin fever, you go out and if anybody's still interested, you try to direct the movie. The only problem with this scenario as I sketch it is that once you've directed movies that are successful, they keep coming at you with material. And it's like a merry-go-round. It, it takes a little bit of willpower to get off because there's always the fear, you know, that if you stay away from it too long or something that you'll become passe and that a younger man, although God knows I, I couldn't conceive of one of them, would, would come along, you know. Steven Spielberg and I have been in our 30s for 20 years now. I wanted to be a director. I mean, when I was, when I was in college, I wanted to be an actor. That was my, my goal. I, and then I found out two things. One is that I couldn't act. A shattering discovery. And the other was that it wasn't really very interesting work. And that the person who told the actors what to do, with whom I was always quarreling because I thought I knew better, was a more interesting job. So I started directing plays, and then and I even did a lot of radio plays, uh, which is very interesting, and gives you a, a finely tuned ear for the nuances of, of uh, language. And that's what I wanted to do. That was my conscious goal. Writing, I never thought about. Writing was just something I always did since I was a kid. It was as simple as uh, I like to tell stories. I like to hear them. I like to tell them. I didn't much care if they were comical, tragical, pastoral, historical just so long as they were good stories, by which I mean that after you heard them, you understand why somebody thought it was important to tell it to you. And so uh, I came out here to, to, to direct movies. That was the big goal. And I thought that for a person in my position, the best way to do so was to do it through writing. That was the only way I understood. And eventually what I managed to do was to write a screenplay, which was time after time, which I refused to sell unless I was allowed to direct it which was the way I got to be a screenwriter, was writing The 7% Solution and refusing to sell the novel unless I could write it. So it's the leapfrog method. Sylvester Stallone did it with far more spectacular results with when he wrote Rocky. Thank you very much.